from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State. Welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli. And I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Candace Watts-Smith. And today we are talking about Hong Kong. Our guest is An Cho Ng, who is the head of the Asian Studies Department here at Penn State. And he's also a professor of history, Asian studies, and philosophy. And as you'll hear, a Hong Kong native himself, a Hong Konger, I believe is how he he refers to it. But, um, you know, this this conversation in some ways is unique to Hong Kong and some of the dynamics with China. But it also, I think, fits with a larger pattern of, of what we've seen in some of our previous episodes about countries outside the U.S., whether it's Hungary or Brazil or India, conversations about whose voice matters in, in democracy, the tensions between civil rights and, and civil liberties. And this is just yet another example of that playing out in Hong Kong. Yeah, we see all kinds of manifestations of you know, somewhere between threats to democracy, to attacks to democracy, to uh, uh, people questioning democracy all over the world right now. And uh, what's going on in Hong Kong is really significant and important. There's uh, real interesting parallels. um, And there's also really important differences. I think it is, though, important to keep in mind that not only are we not scholars of Hong Kong politics or Chinese politics, but we are look through the world through American lenses, mm-hmm. right? We have our understanding of what values uh, correspond to democracy. We have our own ideas about how to measure democracy when we see it, when we don't. And so I think it's important for us to be honest about that. And even the parallels that we see between different situations, like for me, I was initially focused and like my attention got focused on this because it's a youth movement and it it has been cast as a youth movement. And there's also the Black Lives Matter movement. And so because of my own positionality, I really I see parallels between this movement and the way that it's shaking out as a social movement and as a protest series of protests over a long period of time the better part of a year comes from me, you know, just having that particular lens and understanding of the world. No, I agree with that. Um, I think, but I think it's, it's cause for us to be careful Mm -hmm. about the parallels we draw. It doesn't, it shouldn't stop us from Mm -hmm. drawing parallels, right? Because Hong Kong was a British colony, right? It manifests features that are part of this Anglo tradition of, of civil rights or the rule of law. And so are we, right? And so, of course, there are going to be important differences. But I also think it's, it's fair just to say there are interesting parallels with regards to different kinds of protests. There's interesting parallels with regards to how Hong Kongers understand their standing as as sovereign or as someone who has rights. And I think, you know, we can't help but use our own standards. We just got to 
be cautious about that. Mm-hmm. We got to be, you know, look a little askance at that and understand that we're not getting the full picture. And I mean, the other thing, and, and we will talk about this in the interview, but there is a, a deadline of sorts mm-hmm. on that. The, that that provision that you were just talking about, Chris, it, it lasts for 50 years. So until 2047. So, you know, that I think also plays right. into some of this, this dynamic between younger generations and older generations, uh, you know, much like mm-hmm. we see young people here in, in the U.S. leading the charge for, for climate change and for Black Lives Matter right. and these things. Yeah, I mean, it certainly puts 50 years in perspective. And I, it, it seems to me that at the time, in, in 1997, you know, China was starting to open up. There is a lot of economic development. And probably, you know, if we had asked Vegas, maybe they would have said, hey, in 50 years, China's right. going to look more like Hong Kong. Look, you've got all these different issues, right? Rule of law, Hong Kong courts are better uh, or, or more uh, fair. Uh, income inequality, popular sovereignty, civil rights. And the idea that you're going to be able to say it's 20% this, 40% that. When, when people go to protest, it's like, I'm pissed, right? And that's what's that's what, how about, about how articulate it is. Yeah. So I think, Chris, those four uh, issues that you've just outlined um, sets things up well for this conversation. Uh, so let's go now to my interview with On Showing. Ancho, thank you so much for joining us today on Democracy Works. Uh, my pleasure being here. So uh, excited to talk with you today about Hong Kong. Um, We have done a a series of episodes from time to time on the show looking at the state of of democracy or perhaps lack thereof at various countries around the world. And uh, I think Hong Kong came on to a lot of people's radars here in the U.S. about this time Last year, uh, you know, summer, fall of, of 2019, um, when we saw a lot of protest activity break out and certainly wants to to talk about that. But I thought it might be good to set the stage with, with a little bit of, of background and, and history. So can you um, tell us how Hong Kong's government is, is currently structured and, and maybe how it got to be that way? Right. I mean, of course, uh, many of you know that Hong Kong actually was a British colony for a long time from 1842 to 1997, the year when Hong Kong was returned to China. And um, during British colonial rule, uh, of course, there was no democracy. Uh, However, I think the British did establish a fairly firm tradition of uh, the rule of law, Uh, the last governor of Hong Kong, Chris Patton, when he was there, began a process of democratization, as it were, and that is to say that in the uh, Legislative Council of Hong Kong, which is sort of the Parliament of Hong Kong, there would be members that would be elected through universal suffrage. So in other words, um, you have a legislating body that was actually popularly elected. Now, when Hong Kong was returned to China in 1997, there was the institution of the so-called basic law. 
And this basic law essentially is the Constitution of Hong Kong. And of this basic law essentially is based on the principle of one country and two systems. So this particular basic law, which was created with the endorsement of the Chinese government, basically is premised on the idea that Hong Kong is different because of its history. So essentially, Hong Kong is a so-called uh, special administrative region, so entitled to its own basic law. Now, as I mentioned, the basic legislating body or the parliament, as it were, is the uh, Legislative Council, generally known as the LegCo. This LegCo body, half of it, or a portion of it actually, is popularly elected. However, many of the seats are reserved for members that were appointed by Beijing. And who is in charge of Hong Kong? The person in charge of Hong Kong is the so-called chief executive. Of course, right now, the uh, chief executive is the person by the name of Carrie Lam. And this particular office is essentially backed up by some kind of elective process. However, the candidates for this particular position must be pre-screened and selected, if you like, by Beijing. So one of the major goals, actually, of the protest movements, which, of course, the last one was sparked by the uh, extradition law last year, or the proposal to have an extradition law. But the long-term goal, actually, is to have true universal suffrage, if you like, and that is to say all members of the Legislative Council should be popularly elected as well as the uh, chief executive. And of course, the protest movements that began on a large scale last year actually had been simmering for quite some years, actually, uh, since the uh, return of Hong Kong to uh, China. What was the, the public opinion or, or public sentiment like at that time surrounding the, the transition from British colonial rule to Chinese control, if for, for lack of a better term? Well, there had always been a good deal of reservations, actually. If you look back at the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s as well, there were waves and waves of emigration out of Hong Kong. So then, you know, the uh, catchphrase is that Hong Kong's is a uh, borrowed place with borrowed time, meaning that the colonial status is going to end and uh, China is going to take over. So there is a good deal of um, sense of uncertainty. So what would happen if China uh, did take over, which it did, of course. However, in after 1984, when there was the Sino-British Joint Declaration, which made, made it very clear that China was going to take over Hong Kong, take back Hong Kong in 1997, on the one hand, some people did uh, emigrate out of Hong Kong, did leave, but many of them began to essentially reassess the situation. Well, this is the way it is. So we will work with the situation. So in in a way, you, you, you might say that a, a certain sense of stability was sort of there uh, from the mid-80s onwards. 
And then when China took over, initially, there weren't actually too many changes and the economy was booming. So if you look at the polls then, you would find actually a lot of Hong Kong folks who began to actually develop a better sense of affiliation with with China. For instance, their support of the Chinese athletes in the international arena, uh, China's accomplishments economically, all those things actually did inject a, a good deal of a sense of pride. I think the problem is that as the years moved on, there was a general feeling that perhaps the freedom guaranteed by the rule of law is slowly being corroded. And of course, even since 1997, with the uh, return of Hong Kong, on June 4th annually, there would be essentially demonstrations and there would be, I wouldn't say protests, but anyway, there, there would be a mass gathering to commemorate the Tiananmen incident Mm -hmm. of um, 1989. So in Hong Kong, there there was a tradition that history needs to be told, that essentially uh, a tradition of freedom of speech needs to be preserved. Right, right. And, you know, there is also, you, you mentioned the kind of economic benefits of, of being associated with Beijing and, and everything that that's happened over the past couple of, of decades as far as its its growing economy and, and, and all of this. I know that uh, previously on this show, we've had uh, Larry Diamond, the, the political scientist who's, who's written a lot about China, and he, he frames it as this model of of authoritarian-backed capitalism can be pretty tough to ignore or, or to, to resist. It can be pretty tempting to kind of push aside the concerns you might have about things like civil liberties or freedom of speech or freedom of the press, rule of law in favor of the kind of economic benefits that, that being associated with Beijing might offer. Unquestionably. Because if you're talking about economic development, also cultural developments, you know, from the 80s and 90s and even the alts were golden years. On the one hand, you have a booming economy because essentially after China opened up, Hong Kong actually was a major force in helping China actually propel itself into uh, full-fledged capitalism despite its uh, communist ideology. So Hong Kong actually reaped, as you said, a good deal of benefits from that sort of economic development. Interesting thing is that there is no question that there is a economic uh, dimension to the uh, political and democratic movement. Uh, one of the major slogans actually is to strive for uh, universal suffrage and to improve people's livelihood. The idea is that political change and reform must also be accompanied by economic betterment. So Hong Kong actually is the most expensive city in the world. And uh, freewheeling capitalism in the past two, three decades certainly has generated uh, extremely unequal distribution of wealth. The gap between the rich and the poor is 
is extremely large and glaring. I think you have a generation of young people, university graduates, who feel rather hopeless because they work hard, they study hard, and they graduate. And what's going to happen? They don't get a job. And if they get a job, it's not a particularly well-paying job. And there is no hope of owning any property because, you know, the prices of apartments, let alone houses, are sky high. So I think the underlying economic discontent, the perceived and felt failure on the part of the Hong Kong government to better uh, maintain the livelihood of people is very much a uh, contributing factor to the uh, burgeoning and growth of the uh, political movement. You mentioned before uh, about demonstrations, and we've certainly been talking about protests. Where do things stand now and and, and perhaps um, historically as well regarding freedom of speech Freedom of press. I know we we know that that uh, China has a you know pretty tight censorship on on what information comes out of of the country and whatnot. Um, what does that picture look like in in Hong Kong? Well, um, of course, with the passing of the um, national security law that is applied to Hong Kong uh, back in June, a um, poll certainly has been cast on the entire place. And in fact, um, you know, a lot of institutions and individuals are beginning to scrub clean (laughs) uh, their websites um, to look into their library holdings. And the idea is that uh, they they had better not uh, still have uh, materials or writings or documents that suggest... uh, sedition, that suggests subversion, that suggests anti-government stances, or that sort of thing. Even if China is not going to actively censor, there will be a good deal, and there is already a good deal of uh, self-censorship, just to make sure that you are not uh, under suspicion. On the other hand, the Hong Kong judiciary is really fairly independent still, because you have a lot of judges actually are not Hong Kong natives. So, and in fact, if you listen to the chief executive, her position is that even with the security law, because of the independent judiciary, the tradition and practice of the rule of law should remain robust But on the other hand, the security law can be interpreted in a variety of ways. And the fear is that the law can always be interpreted in such a way that it favors the reading on the Mm -hmm. part of the uh, Chinese government. Is that also then why this issue of of extradition that that came about last year is is such a a concern uh, because people who are accused of of crimes would much prefer to to be prosecuted under under Hong Kong's judicial system as opposed to being tried in in China, which is a, a very very different judicial experience, I suppose. Uh, indeed, 
So that's why the extradition law sparked off this major, major protest. Before that, of course, um, really from, from 2003 onwards, when there was the talk of instituting some kind of anti-sedition law, there was already protest. But this time around, when you're talking about actually extraditing people to countries where previously, hitherto, there had not been extradition agreements, sparked off a good deal of fear because China is one of those places that previously did not have um, an extradition agreement with Hong Kong. So in other words, the prosecuted, the indicted in Hong Kong would not be um, sent back to China. Indeed. So, so I guess ultimately there, there is this mistrust of the uh, fairness of the judicial system in China. Whereas in Hong Kong, I think the general perception is that the courts are fair. We've talked about uh, India on the on this show before as well. And one thing that came up there was the, the large role that civil society groups play in India. You know, particularly the, they kind of sprung up in the, the, the post-colonial period. Now, I understand that, you know, India has, has an entirely different structure and their post-colonial transition looks looks much different than than Hong Kong's does. But I'm wondering, um, you know, what how robust of a, of a civil society um, atmosphere there is in, in Hong Kong and, and to what extent that's, that's evolved from the, the colonial era to, to where we are today? Well, actually, the public sphere has been quite, quite robust indeed. It is a very active sort of civil space to the extent that there, there is freedom of speech and there is freedom of assembly. So... You, you, you can actually um, say very critical things about the Hong Kong government and certainly about China. For a long, long time, actually, books by uh, Chinese dissidents were published in Hong Kong and they could be sold openly in Hong Kong and that sort of thing. But, but I think one thing that is important to point out is that, yes, there is no question that for many years there has been a, a, a very active political democratic movement. But let's not forget that actually a lot of the population in Hong Kong essentially is still abiding by the, let's say, the Singaporean model. Mm. And that is to say that as long as there is rule of law, democracy is not considered as terribly important. What is more important actually is livelihood. What is more important is economic development and prosperity. So when you're talking about the Hong Kong democratic movement, you're really talking about a, a local movement driven by the um, Hong Kong youth primarily. So, so therefore, the outlook to me is somewhat pessimistic. But of course, you know, as with a lot of democratic movement, where to put the brakes on is always an issue. Mm-hmm. If you think about last year, when the protesters actually wanted a number of things, the most important of which was the stoppage or the withdrawal of the extradition bill. That was actually achieved. It was withdrawn in September 2019. But of course, the movement continued to press for other demands. And of course, they, the, 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 the ongoing goal of uh, universal suffrage, uh, they wanted uh, amnesty for the uh, arrested protesters. They, they want an individual inquiry into police brutality. 
So, so the uh, movement continued unabated even with the withdrawal of the extra, extradition bill. In other words, the protest movements, the democratic movement, actually achieved a lot of the goals. The question is, do you stop and then you regroup and then you proceed to essentially realize your goals instead of asking for everything at one time? I'm from an older generation. If I talk to my friends, friends of my generation, I would have to say that the majority of them are not particularly enthusiastic about the protest movement, especially when it became actually um, violent. You know, there there was, of course, um, destructions, let's say, of the subway station and, and, and all sorts of things. And a lot of my friends who still live in Hong Kong, and they were very much turned off by that, even though in principle, they're very much uh, sympathetic to the uh, political long-term goals of the, um, of the movement. So I guess in some ways it's a question of strategies in terms of advancing democracy in a particular geopolitical sort of uh, situation. Yeah, and I mean those those age dynamics certainly play out in in other places as well. I mean, we can look, you know, even even here in the US at Joe Biden versus Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? I mean, different different ways of, of doing things. So the other thing that we we think about a lot in in terms of of measuring how democratic a, a, a country, a place, a group is, what, what have you, is whether there is or, or to what extent there is legitimate opposition. Um, and, and so I wonder if whether it's with this, this democracy movement or maybe other you know, areas within the, the governing council, is there that sense that there, there is a, a legitimate opposition to whatever the kind of prevailing rule of, of, of law or kind of guiding political principles might be? Yeah, there is, because, because, as I mentioned, there are quite seats in the Legislative Council that are popularly elected, and these are the so-called pro-democracy camp. They have, it has been a very vibrant voice. So, and, and in fact, you know, they, they have been able to exert a good deal, good deal of influences on the Hong Kong government. I mean, they, they have been doing battle with the chief, chief executive, and certainly they have been in contention with the uh, pro-Beijing stance. And of course, they do, by and large, have popular support behind them. But if you look at the, the latest election, which is the lowest level of election, the pro-democracy camp actually swept to a great victory so in very many ways, actually, popular sentiment is behind them. So in that sense, they have been a very vibrant opposition group. The problem is with the security law, because you don't know how this law is going to be interpreted, how it's going to be executed, that may actually curtail the um activities on the part of the uh, pro-democracy camp. So, so it's, it's, again, hard to say. Things as they are do guarantee a particular distinct niche 
for opposition. So it's not as though that you have a government that is entirely run by the uh, chief executive. The Legislative Council actually is very much a site of lively debates and substantive, actually, policy differences. Mm-hmm. And so the other thing kind of hanging over all of this is, as we start to, to wrap up here, and, and this maybe perhaps plays into this, some of these these generational differences is that the as I understand it, the, the basic law is set to expire or, or be reevaluated in 2047. So I can see maybe if you are younger and you plan, you know, you're, you're going to be around in 2047 as opposed to an older generation who might not be or might be toward the end of their lives. Or, you know, so I'm wondering how this kind of looming deadline or, you know, looming date in the, in the future, 20 some years from now, uh, kind of factors into to some of these dynamics we've been talking no, about. No, no question about it, because you're talking about 20-odd years, and then with the expiration of the basic law, then what? There is absolutely no provision for now. Because, I mean, originally, when, when the basic law was instituted in uh, 97, the idea is that in 50 years' time, the, the pace of uh, political development in the two places, namely China and Hong Kong, will become more in line with each other. But so far, that has not happened. And I guess a lot of political theorists have been mystified by how economic uh, development or economic liberalization, the introduction of capitalism, does not lead to political liberalization. (laughs) So Singapore is in case in point, China is in case in point, of course, you know. So originally, the idea is that with economic liberalization, there will be political liberalization, but it's not happening. So what? Mm. So indeed, there is this long-term concern. So what happens when the basic law is no longer in place? In other words, there is no longer the acknowledgement of having two systems within one country. After the expiration of the basic law, all you have is one country. So in other words, Hong Kong no longer will become a, will stay a um, special administrative region. So Hong Kong simply would be another city like Shanghai or, or Beijing, right? Or Nanjing, one of those cities. Mm-hmm. So, so as far as the uh, young people are concerned, yes, it is important for Hong Kong to create a truly democratic structure so that when it comes time to end the basic law, there will be a some kind of infrastructure that is still uniquely Hong Kong. I've learned a lot about how we, we got here and, and some of the dynamics at play and the, the, the complexities in Hong Kong. Ancho, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, it's my pleasure talking to you. Ancho brought up a number of really important issues and just really did um, an amazing job for me of kind of explaining the nuances and how messy um, the, the dynamics in Hong Kong are right now. One of the things that you mentioned, Chris, uh, earlier in the show is how sometimes um, protests and social movements 
seem very flat, right? That people are just saying how pissed they are. But I also think it's really important for us to note and notice um, the evolution of a social movement. So we have to keep in mind that when the protests began, it had to do with the withdrawal of the extradition policy. And that was Mm -hmm. starting in June and then July, August, September rolls around and people are mad. Mm -hmm. And by then it was a little too late, like it was too little too late. Yeah, the policy got withdrawn, but by then people were noticing, hey, you need to investigate police brutality. You need to release some of these arrested individuals. Um, You need to stop calling these protest riots. Carrie Lamb, you got to go, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Um, and then there was like this additional sixth demand that shows up for a call for universal suffrage. So I think that I, I think that it's important to consider the fact that hey, maybe if Carrie Lamb had done the withdrawn the the policy in July, none of this would have unfolded this way. Who knows? But I think it's, it's really important awesome. to consider how people recognize the problems as issues and inequality and violence from the state um, become more exaggerated in these moments of protest. I mean, the the natural human inclination is to say, and another thing, (laughs) you know, and this is actually, this just brings to mind all these other things that I'm unhappy about. And what's at the core of this, I mean, we should say that this extradition treaty or, you know, the idea was that if you were charged for a crime in Hong Kong, you could be extradited to China, to mainland China. And the concern was that Chinese courts aren't fair, right? That Hong Kong has this longstanding rule of law, the court was independent, and you could get a fairer trial in Hong Kong. And that was, you know, basically the start of all this. But but underneath that concern is this much bigger picture about fairness, equality, the rights of the individual in China versus Hong Kong. And so it's not that far from saying, you know, these courts are unfair to saying this is a police state, right? And and so I have some argument with the idea that the protests changed. I think the mm-hmm. protests just found the core of what they were protesting about. And of course, right. depending on who you're asking, police are going to say there's three, 400,000 people. Protesters are going to say there's one, two million people. Um, right. But at some point, there are estimates of two million people out of seven and a half million people on the right. street. It's, it's unbelievable. But over, and really over time. So then like, right, we know then like, is inequality really the issue here? If you've got one third of the population who's like onward. But over time, we also see a generational break. And we know that younger people are the ones who are seeing that their education levels are not translating into Mm -hmm. higher incomes, that they can see that they are going to have a lack of um, social and economic mobility. They can see rising costs. They can see any, um, you know, income inequality where their parents might have enjoyed the fruits of that economic development. It's not unlike boomers and millennials in the US. And I can imagine that some people see that um, the protests were a fail. And I think that brings up questions of how do you measure success of a social movement? And how do you 
determine the extent to which you um, move the mark toward democracy or not. So I think that some people would say, look, now there are a number of privileges that have been taken away. And, you know, the security law says that you should have nothing to do with secession, subversion, terrorism, Mm -hmm. collusion with foreign forces, which on their face sound like pretty rational things. Well, but they're very... (laughs) deliberately vague term. That's right. Right. right? So the issue will be implementation. Mm -hmm. I think that other people, so some people will say it was a fail. Now look. Mm -hmm. And I think that probably other young people will say, well, at least we didn't go down without a fight. Right. Right. Again, we don't know what it's like to be a Hong Konger or a Chinese person, but we do see things that are worth reflecting on. And um, Mm -hmm. as as people who care about democracy, um, we should do that, right? And we should use it not just in terms of their own context, but as you said, take what we're seeing there and say, what does this mean for our society, our democracy? And and that's enough reason right there for us to, to have this conversation. Thanks to Ancho. For, uh, for, for the interview. Thanks to Jenna. Uh, and uh, thanks to Candace for yet another really, uh, really interesting conversation. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Candace Watt-Smith. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.